2: Welcome to the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and I'm filling in this week for my pastor, for your pastor, the one who normally hosts this radio show. But we will continue on as usual while Pastor Ron and Paula are enjoying their vacation. So all this week, I'll be filling in except for, and this is more of a scheduling note, and I'll say at the beginning and remind you at the end, uh, tomorrow will be a rebroadcast. Now, that's normally our date, the edition, and my wife, May, usually joins me, and she loves to be on the air with me, but we can't do it tomorrow, and so we have a scheduling conflict. Actually, you can pray for my wife. She's flying out with my daughter uh, early tomorrow morning, and she's dropping off our daughter... In a faraway place. They're in Providence, Rhode Island for a summer program. So she'll be taking care of her there, uh, dropping her off and coming back. But she'll miss the date day edition tomorrow. So uh, we will air a previous date day edition with Pastor Ron and Paula. So today is Wednesday. That means here at Calvary Chapel. It is our Old Testament Bible study night. And so Pastor Chris will be filling in for Pastor Ron. And he'll be teaching Psalm 29 tonight. So come and join us as usual. If you're normally here on Wednesday night, then everything continues as usual. Seven o'clock here in the sanctuary. Let me give you the phone numbers. To call in to our show, 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. The toll-free number is 877-630-5757. Again, it's 877-630-5757. And the email address to submit your questions is questions, that's plural, At CalvarySA.com. Questions at CalvarySA.com. You can use our church app if you want to submit questions that way. And you can use the KSLR mobile app to dial in directly to the radio studio and ask your question on the air. Okay. I, I do want to say something really quick. I was really blessed today. Um, somebody that listened to the Monday episode of this show uh, mentioned to me that that they, they felt led by the Lord after hearing what I had done, me and my wife had done during our vacation. And as a refresher, the Lord had put it on our hearts to, to bring the family together, a family that we haven't seen in a long time and gather them together specifically to to have a time of worship and a, a short time in God's Word to give them the clear gospel message. And our family is not saved. And a couple of them are, but it's a large extended family, all my cousins. And we all grew up hardcore Catholic, and many of them are still to this day. And so that was something that we we don't normally do, we don't have those kind of conversations, but it was time to do it. And we did it, and God honored it, and it was a blessing. And so somebody came up to me and said that really inspired them. They felt led by the Lord to do the exact same thing. And it really blessed my heart because God's going to honor that. Whether or not they respond there and then, uh, that's between them and the Lord. But God will honor them. So God bless you. Thank you to that person for sharing that with me. Okay, so this is a show where we take your Bible questions, questions about doctrine, questions about the Word of God, and how to apply it in your life so that we can help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. Let's go on to the questions. This first one is from our email inbox, and it's from Anonymous. Uh A father came to Christ later in life, and sons were 17, 10, and 6. Now, five years later, the father is living for Christ, and the oldest two sons don't respect their dad from all of the heartaches and the bad examples the father caused by not coming home some nights, also doing drugs and drinking alcohol, etc., What should the father do to try and gain their trust back from the children that don't feel loved by him? Also, when the father tries to discipline them, it causes more chaos because the kids have anger towards him and don't feel that he's lovingly disciplining them because he yells at them and talks down to them. I am the mother and I am guilty for always arguing with my husband in front of the kids. But I've always been there for them and raised them in church and did not do or show them bad examples. Please help. We need advice. Thank you, Pastor Ron and Paula. And so the first thing I want to say is this. I will forward this to Pastor Ron so he will answer this on the air, but I also want to take uh, advantage of this opportunity to to provide an answer and then I'm sure Pastor Ron will will add his because this is important. There are there are a few things here, Anonymous, in this email, that really break my heart. But what breaks my heart the most is the fact that At the end of your question, uh, you use words like, he yells and you are always arguing. And that's not the way Christians act. If I were the kids in your home and with your mouth, the father or or the, the mother talk about Jesus, but there's yelling and arguing in the house then I'm not going to listen to anything you say. Now, please hear my heart here because this is very important, critically important. I understand that we all have a past, especially when it comes to parenting. There are things that we regret doing and decisions that we, we've made. And You've heard Pastor Ron share his, his testimony and his stories about of, of how difficult it was because he'd raised his, his young boys all, to, to be just like him. And then when he got saved, they were already older. But that doesn't matter. And what I want you to know, Anonymous, is this. If you and your husband are truly born again, then the Bible has to be the authority in your home and Jesus has to be the center of your home. If this is going to be Jesus's house, then Jesus needs to be the one that is in authority. And, and remember this, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes in verse 17 that if anyone, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, because we have this ministry of reconciliation, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new is has come well for you and your husband it sounds like the old is still here and and if the old is still here imagine the confusion for the boys who are now you said this was five years later so they're now adults one of them and or near adult age for the others and they're old enough to recognize duplicity Even the youngest is. And you discredit yourselves, and you discredit anything you have to say when you act in a way that unbelievers act, because from their perspective, there is no difference. In fact, it's worse. It's worse because like James says, you, you with your same mouth, you profess blessings, and with that same mouth, you profess cursing. And it ought not be that gives the children in the home uh, uh, not only confusion, but it, it gives them a, a reason to not open their hearts to Jesus. Now, this is going to be an individual decision between them and the Lord, but you're not helping them to follow Christ. So to answer your specific question here, uh, what should the Father do to try and gain their trust back? Uh, he needs to act like Jesus. If he is truly born again, he needs to leave the old self behind. Remember what Paul the Apostle would write to the Colossians, and he would say in chapter 3, but now you must, and this is an imperative, it's a command, you must also get rid of all such things or rid yourselves of all such things as as these anger, malice, envy, strife, and filthy language from your lips, and it sounds like your household anonymous is demonstrating all of these things. I understand, like I'd already mentioned. Believe me, I understand the regret uh, and the the guilt that the enemy can distract us with when we have made bad decisions in our home as parents, when we have demonstrated evil examples. And so when when kids see that, we own it. When they see that from the past and then it gets brought up again today, five years later, there's no value in denying it. There's no value in defending yourself. Don't do that. You own it and what i mean by that is you say yes you're right and i absolutely deserve that but that's not who i am anymore jesus has forgiven me of my sin and your 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 lifestyle has to back that up and then you walk in the power of god's spirit today taking your uh, the husband taking his wife by the hand and taking the kids by their hands and saying, follow my example as I follow Christ. Does it mean you're never going to make mistakes? No. But what the children need to see, they don't need to see perfect parents. What they need to see are parents who love Jesus enough to repent of their sin and say, I'm sorry, when they're wrong. Some of the things you describe here would indicate that you said he yells and talks down to them, and you are guilty of arguing with him in front of the kids. And then you say, "But I have always been there for them." That's not being there for them. That's that's. I liken that to the the husband that says, "You know what? I bring home the paycheck." And so I get to act however I want. No, you don't. If you are a born-again Christian, then you'll repent. And if this is a lifestyle, a regularly cyclical behavior in your home, well, then this husband needs to get saved. And so do you, Anonymous and that's where you start because a person who has met my Jesus is going to be completely different than who they were before and it's no different for anyone else if you are defensive and if you're offended then then maybe that's an indication that your heart isn't right with the Lord and you need to repent. Um, so I, I, anonymous, I, I'm sure that wasn't the answer you you were expecting, but it's the only answer that will help you. And like I said, I will go ahead and forward this very important. Yeah. Email this question to pastor Ron and I'll let him articulate and elaborate on it. Um, because I'm sure he has a lot to say his 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 life and his testimony bear witness to God's faithfulness when when we as parents have made mistakes in the past, and he'd be a wonderful resource to provide insight on this anonymous. so thank you for your question. Let's go ahead and move on to the next derek Derek says, "What is the sin Jesus talks about in Matthew?" Chapter twelve verse thirty one. I've heard people say If I'm worried about it then I haven't done it, but I still want to know what it is. Okay, well let me let me go ahead and read this short passage and so we can understand the context. I think most of us are familiar with this, but I'll read it anyways. Uh, Matthew twelve thirty one. And so, Jesus says, I tell you every sin and blasphemy will not will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but anyone who speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come so this is what's often referenced by people as the the blasphemy of the holy spirit and and like you, Derek, a lot of people ask, well, well, what is it? Specifically, I want to know so that I can make sure I don't do it. Well, Derek, it's, it's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. There is no specific sin or action here that is you know, that somebody would be guilty of, but it's the state of your heart. Let me explain and remember the context of this passage here. Just a few verses earlier, 10 verses earlier, in verse 21, Jesus cast out the demon from a demon-possessed man, and the Jews were there to witness it. And so as the Jews would witness it, instead of softening their hearts and recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, they actually hardened their hearts, and it's it's demonstrated by the, what they say, because what they say next is this. The Jews would write it off, excuse the miracle that they just witnessed by saying that Jesus performed this miracle by the power of the devil. That would be Beelzebub. So essentially what they're saying is that Jesus did this by the power of the unholy spirit, not the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is the one who separates themselves from the only one who could lead them to repentance. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is the one whose ministry is to convict us of, of sin. He convicts us, and in John chapter 16, he convicts us of judgment and of righteousness and of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so, apart from repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. And That repentance comes through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is saying here to the Jews is that there isn't a specific sin or action that will render you unforgivable, but it is essentially denying the message of the Holy Spirit, denying the conviction and separating yourself from the only one who can lead you to repentance. And so that's why you've heard people say, well, if you're worried about it, then then you may not have been, you're not guilty of it because it's the attitude of your heart, not a specific action. And if you are concerned about committing this sin, then you know now it's the state of your heart. And if you are so worried about being in sin that you repent immediately, then you don't have to worry about it. So, Derek, I I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. You know, not part of your question, Derek, but I— I do want to take a, a moment just to elaborate on this because this is one of those questions, a common question on this show. Because people have, you know, they hear about the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and the first thing is they don't want to commit it. And none of us do. But as it pertains to every sin in our life, God is less concerned about the action itself. He's more concerned about the heart from which those actions come from. For example, remember when Jesus was talking about the words that come out of your mouth, They are the outflowing or the overflowing of that which comes from the heart. So, so the solution isn't to duct tape your mouth, the real solution is to deal with the root cause which is the heart and and our hearts when we're in sin we need to admit that we're wrong and that Jesus is right it doesn't matter how we feel it doesn't even matter if you don't want to say sorry it doesn't matter if if it, you were treated unfairly the very fact that you're angry that you don't want to listen to God already shows that your heart is the one that's wrong, even if there's other people around you that have done worse things. And so repentance is the way that that fellowship is restored back with Jesus Christ and you walk in the fullness of the power of God's Spirit and you're not worried about the the blasphemy of the holy spirit it is also a freedom here too because uh, in your 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 actions the way you live your life is no longer dependent upon the people around us you know we want to we want to repent and we know that's the right thing to do but then we we go back to the person and we say that we're sorry. And then when it's met with a a less than sorry response or somebody who says something that's offensive, immediately we go back to being angry and offended. And that's just not true repentance. So, yes, that's what the passage in Matthew 12 is about. And um, Derek, I hope that helps. Okay, I've I've got a couple of minutes here. Oh, uh, here, here's one that just came in. This is an easy one; I can answer real quickly. I, I just heard that Pastor Chris is teaching. Who is Pastor Chris? Has he taught at your church before? Thank you, anonymous, for asking that question, and forgive me for not explaining. Uh, pastor Chris is a pastor at our church, and he is here. He was. Born here, raised here, trained here, and he is uh, the pastor of of the youth. And of, Both he and Pastor Matthew grew up here. But yes, he has taught here before. Pastor Chris Sanchez is the one who is teaching tonight, and he is one of our pastors that are on staff. He's got a great gift of teaching. He's got a great heart for the Lord, and he loves the Bible. You can tell when he teaches. So Anonymous, thank you for asking and and I um, I hope that that makes sense and please forgive me for not clarifying there at the beginning of the um of the show. Pastor Chris is actually one of um our teachers here at the academy also. He is a very smart young man and like what Pastor Ron says to him everybody's young well Pastor Chris is really young cuz he's young to me. And so <laughs> yeah, Pastor Chris is great. 7 o'clock tonight uh, here at Calvary Chapel, our Old Testament study. He is teaching out one of the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 29 I mentioned. And he's a great, great teacher, but he's got an even bigger heart. You'll be blessed. So thank you, Anonymous, for for mentioning that. And, well, I don't have enough time here to to take another question. We're wrapping up the first half of the show. Um, Another thing about Pastor Chris is he He also graduated from Calvary Chapel Bible College and so trained here, uh, trained over at the, the Bible College and came back to serve in his community at his home church where he grew up. So you can hear the music. That means we are done with the first half of the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. If you're just tuning in, my name is Pastor Ken. I am filling in for Pastor Ron this whole week. And uh, he's on vacation. Both he and Paula are enjoying a much-deserved and much-needed time away with the Lord at their favorite place there at the California beach. So you can keep them in prayer. His prayer request is that he would hear clearly from the Lord, both he and Paula, about the the things pertaining here at church. There's so many things going on. Um, and, And we just want to hear clearly from the Lord. So he sends his love. They both do they're both doing well and they'll be back here on the air July 5th that Monday. Tuesday. So, a oh, Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Okay, so phone numbers 210-340-9585 210-340-9585 877-630-5757 that's the toll-free number. The email address to submit questions is questions at calvarysa.com. You can use our church app or you can use the KSLR app to uh, either submit questions or call in to the radio station. And you'll be right on the air. One quick note, reminder tonight, as I just said at the closing of the first half, Pastor Chris will be filling in for Pastor Ron tonight, he'll be teaching at a Psalm 29, and Pastor Chris Sanchez is a gift. He's one of the pastors here on staff. A big heart for God's people uh, and, and a great intellectual mind that really loves God's Word. All right, let's move on to the questions that have been submitted. This one came in yesterday at the very end of the show. I didn't have time to answer it, so I'll take it now. It's from Anonymous, and it was submitted through our mobile app. What are your favorite books of the Old Testament and the New Testament to dive deep into? I love it. This is a great question. Great question. And so my answer is that it changes from time to time. It changes from time to time. Uh, there are a few, though, that are my favorites that I'll go back to once in a while. But right now, for example, uh, I'm I'm going slowly through Jeremiah's prophecy. And and I'm doing it in a way to where I'm really looking at Jeremiah's heart and, and how God deals with his heart and looking and paying a little bit closer attention to the conversation between them. Uh, because Jeremiah, we all know him as the weeping prophet. Somebody whose ministry of forty plus years uh, really amounted to no converts. His audience was often people who wanted to kill him, and at the same time, you know, all of us being familiar with that, can't imagine or what that would be like for an extended amount. We we have trouble for, you know, people rejecting us for forty seconds. I'd imagine if it is a a much longer longer time frame of decades and decades and the, so currently that 's where i 'm at but some of my favorites that I go back to all the time, I personally love in the Old Testament, the combination of Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books, and in the old testament and in the manuscripts they really came as one, but those two exilic books uh describe. God's faithfulness if you will remember Ezra records the first two trips back when the Jews left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem one to establish the temple, another one to establish the community and Zerubbabel there leading the first one, he took risks for the Lord he took risks for the Lord And, and that is something that I see in in Ezra also, but the book uh, both Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle that that period that historical period of coming back and being restored, and the practical application there really speaks to my heart because they were a far off people after the time of judgment and being exiled to Babylon. It was God making things new, but what I like most about Ezra and Nehemiah is that there was work that had to be done. There was work that had to be done. And remember, in the second trip back, it was when the um, when the actually it was the first trip back. My, my apologies. When they would it, the the Bible says that the 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 crying sounds. Uh, were combined with the shouts of celebration as the the temple was uh, at least the the altar was established and that would be the first part of restoring the temple and as they would work on the temple the sounds were the loud sounds were a mixture of the older people crying really complaining about how the older temple was better, and then the the, the younger, newer people who were working together with the older people celebrating God's goodness. And that's just a picture of us today. We can always find something to complain about. But if we focus on God's faithfulness, instead of complaining, instead of grumbling, we'll be grateful. And then Nehemiah's book is one that I go back to all the time because... The way that he would traverse the walls and examine the walls, you know, each one of them, and collectively as a whole, and both individually and collectively, it parallels our own lives. We all have these gates that we deal with in our lives. And, and again, it is a picture of God's faithfulness. Because if people get to be restored back to their home after serving their time with there in Babylon, God proves that He isn't done with them yet. Sometimes, you know, we feel like we've messed up. We've messed up one too many times, and there's no way God could use us anymore. But Ezra and Nehemiah is one of my reminders. Of God's faithfulness. I'll add one more here in the Old Testament. There's Second Samuel. If you've heard me before, uh, teach one of my favorite characters is Mephibosheth. Remember Jonathan's son who was crippled. I mean the the the, the nurse or the the one taking care of him, would, dropped him uh, as an infant, as a, a young baby. And his entire life, this man named Mephibosheth suffered uh, the cruel treatment, the harsh treatment of being looked down upon by the culture. Because remember, anybody that was sick or not fully healthy, anybody that was crippled was looked down upon as somebody that was less than human. But God used King David to restore Mephibosheth. And remember, King David searched out for any of Jonathan's um, uh, family that was still alive, found out about Mephibosheth and, and restored him figuratively by giving him a permanent place at the king's table. And that's just a wonderful picture of us, what Jesus has done for us. He's taken us, the lowly, the the lonely, and, and the abandoned, the ones that society has neglected. Now, I know some of you may not think of yourselves that way, but when we look at Mephibosheth, we realize that's exactly who we were. He was somebody that would have been satisfied with just being restored as a normal citizen and no longer looked down upon. And the reason why this resonates with me so personally is because my my own testimony, and I won't go over it, but I can identify with that sentiment. Mm -hmm. I was somebody that was, you know, I remember looking or hearing about uh, people from my 10 and 15 year high school reunion, trying to get together and celebrate uh, their accomplishments as doctors and lawyers and CEOs. As I went to a magnet school in California, that's what we called uh, schools or school programs for people who were a little bit accelerated, harder classes. So a lot of my classmates did really well. Well, not me. I wasn't included in that. I was doing things that every parent hopes and prays that their child doesn't. And so I was like Mephibosheth when I got saved, though. I can picture myself being seated at King David's table. And that generates a gratitude because of God's grace, a motivating gratitude in my heart from God's grace. And The New Testament, uh, it changes. The book of Acts is one that I really love. I love to go and read, in fact, for a while, I think it was a month or two months, um, I would go through, me and May would go through Philippians almost every single day, and particularly in Chapter 2, because we, we look at the humility of Jesus Christ, and we, every time we're picking up something new, as we go through, it's a short book, four chapters, and we can go through it every single day. Another one is the Book of Acts I'd already mentioned, but the Book of Acts, I like to dive deep into it because of the, the Book of Acts chronicles or documents the acts of the Holy Spirit, and we get to see what happens in the lives of regular people like you and me when they are led by the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Stephen and Peter and and Lydia even, uh, Timothy, all these people, there's so many of them, that normal people that all took risks for Jesus Christ because they were obedient to the Holy Spirit. And so the acts of the Holy Spirit in people's lives is... A record of what God wants to do in our lives as regular people. You never want to limit what the Lord wants to do. Now, obviously, there are some things that were unique to the book of Acts. Uh, it's, it's written in historical narratives, so there were some certain events that were unique that are not going to happen again, like the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. But we get to watch how God works in the hearts of men and women who are willing to risk everything to follow the Lord and, and what God accomplishes through them is just a beautiful thing. And so Anonymous, thank you for asking that question. I probably took a little bit longer to... I can get lost in, in these personal questions and talking about what, what I find as favorites of mine, but thank you for... Obliging me and giving me a few moments to share my heart. Okay, the next question is from Jason. Jason says If Jesus was the Son of God, why did he call himself the Son of Man in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18? Good question. Good question. So you're right, Jason. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees knew that the Son of Man was a title ascribed to the Messiah. and They knew that based out of Daniel chapter 7, because in Daniel chapter 7, there is a uh, specific reference of the Messiah being called the Son of Man, and later on, the Ancient of Days. But, but here's the interesting part: and the Jews would know that the Son of Man was a title ascribed to the Messiah. But Jesus again uses it for Himself in Chapter 24. Now, in Chapter 24 of Matthew, in Chapter 25, remember this is the the All of It discourse. And and we need to remember the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus, again, uses this title for himself, the Son of Man, because he came for the Jews first, that they would believe he was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Now, a couple of things about this. So the title of the Son of Man that we learn from Daniel, is described to the Messiah. And the title of the Son of God are not contradictory. They don't contradict one another. At first glance, we think, you know, the Son of Man is somebody that is man, and the Son of God is somebody that is God. And that's not wrong. But I say it's no contradiction because the two titles describe Jesus, and this is what makes Jesus unique. From everyone else. Jesus was 100% man, and he was 100% God. Theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. Now, that name itself is not exactly important, but that's the theological term. That's the theological doctrine that describes the 100% humanity of Jesus and the 100% deity of Jesus. The incarnation, think about this, the incarnation of Christ did not subtract from his deity. It was the addition of his humanity. The incarnation of Christ did not subtract from his deity. So, when Jesus was born and would take on human flesh, He didn't take away a percentage of his deity to allow for his humanity. He still remained 100% God. But by taking on the form of a human, he added to his nature 100% humanity. And that's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And that's what helps us understand here, Jason, that in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who would immediately recognize that the title of the Son of Man was something that was, I'm sorry, this, yes, the title of the Son of Man was something ascribed only to the Messiah. So I hope that helps. Thank you for your question, Jason. Next question is from, from Peter. Why is there a wall around the New Jerusalem? Oh, this is a good question. So we learn from Revelation chapter 21. Ch- Revelation chapter 21 that there, the New Jerusalem is going to have a wall around it. Now, I'm just going to turn there real quickly because I want to read the description. In Revelation chapter 21... And this is what it says. Chapter 21, verse, let's see, 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three in the north and three in the south and three in the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's right out of Revelation 21. So, Peter, great question. Why is there a wall? Why is there a wall? We know that walls were used as security. Walls were used as security. And so in heaven, though, if everyone is going to be born again, Why would there be a wall? Well, I think the last three verses give us an answer. You're in the last verses of chapter 21. It says, On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. So the last three verses here, 25, 26, and 27 of Revelation 21, give us more insight. These gates, and gates would, like I said, normally use for security purposes. Well, we learned that these gates will never be shut. They'll never be closed. And... It's not that outside of the new Jerusalem there will be you know evil people and unsafe people roaming around but the description here is a city on a, a new city on a new earth where believers are going to dwell throughout eternity so yes the gates are there but the gates are always open and I love this because It says that there will never be any night. It'll constantly be light or or day. And we know that the light of Jesus Christ is going to illuminate the new Jerusalem. And so the picture here, even if we don't have a definitive answer about why the wall is there, I think there's two parts. Number one, it is uh, visually a demonstration of the strength of Jerusalem, the strength of God's city, proclaiming his victory over over evil. And even if the city was previously destroyed, the reconstruction of this new Jerusalem shows that God is victorious. And the second thing is, is that the gates of the wall, will never be shut. And so it, it's no longer a security purpose, but it's it's something that's constantly open for people to go in and out of those roaming around. Because we know this, that there, all of the people that rejected Christ will not be there. They will be dealt with at the great white throne of judgment, which was in the previous chapter. This would be after all evil has been judged, everyone will be cast. Everyone who rejects Christ, even those who have died before, will be resurrected. They will be a standing before the great white throne of judgment, and they will be cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and the, 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 the other two, the beast and the prophet. And so there's no longer any need for security. Peter, I hope that helps. Great question. I like the way you think. You know, and I think I mentioned this yesterday or the show sometime this week, maybe Monday, but uh, there isn't much detail about what heaven is like. And we can read some of the things in Revelation, um, but we don't know exactly what it'll be like. I think that's part of the the mystique and the, the awe of wondering what it'll be and how it'll be and what it'll look like. But we do know this. The gates will be open and all those who love God will be there. I think I have time for one quick one. Uh, let me take this one. Uh, we don't have time for any more calls, but this one's from Abby. What would be considered more important. Going to church or and reading the Bible or actively trying to live like Jesus. And, and reading the Bible includes trying to memorize the Bible verses. Abby, I, I would say you have it all wrong. These two are not distinct. They're not diametrically opposed to one another. Going to church and reading the Bible means you will go to church and you will live like Jesus. You can't read your Bible and not live like Jesus. And you can't read your Bible and not go to church because the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, says that we can't forsake the gathering. And this is particularly important in our post-pandemic attitude. A lot of people are back at church here at Calvary Chapel. That's great. and But there's still some that adopt the, the mindset of, well, I, you know, i I can't go to church. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around people. And I kind of like living at home and staying in my pajamas and not doing anything. And I like being lazy. I got used to it. But that's an excuse for the flesh. So, the answer to your question, Abby, neither one is more important. You've got to do both. And when you're with Jesus and your Bible is open, you're studying God's word and your heart is set on pleasing the Lord, you'll go to church, you'll read your Bible. And you will live like Jesus. All these things will happen. So it's not one or the other. that be I, that's as direct and as clear as I can make it. I hope that helps you. But please don't fall into that trap of and again I don't know you, I don't know if this is your heart, but don't fall into that trap of this sort of this post pandemic attitude of you know, I don't have to go to church anymore. I kinda like staying away from people. Hebrews chapter ten verse 25 makes it very clear that we are not to forsake the gathering of the brethren so go to church read your bible and you'll live like Jesus tonight 7 o'clock Pastor Chris Sanchez will be teaching our Old Testament study in Psalm 29 tomorrow again a rebroadcast of our date day edition you can keep my wife and my daughter in prayer and I'll be back on the air here at 4 o'clock on Friday for the word to stand on for life